Hello, Ann Arbor and the world, and this is It's Hot in Here, and this is WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I am your co-host, Jennifer Johnson, and I am here with the lovely Andrea Krauss. Hello, Andrea. Hello, and happy holidays, everyone. Happy holidays to you and everyone. Hey, we have some really exciting holiday news to share about our colleague, Eva Resnick Day. So Eva Resnick Day, for those of you that maybe haven't been able to tune in the last couple of times that we've aired, uh, is an activist working on a special campaign here in Michigan to pressure Kellogg's to, uh, who is partnering with Wilmar International, the largest palm oil trader in the world, to adopt a no deforestation policy. She's been working on this for months and we're really happy to announce that on December 5th, Wilmar International, again, the world's largest palm oil trader, announced that it would be instituting a no deforestation, no exploitation policy. Wow. So they'll just keep producing on their already existing deforested land and uh, no more. Exactly. Um, It's better than nothing. That's fantastic, actually. Let's be serious. It's 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 a pretty big deal. And um, Eva played a huge role. She uh, has been working on this for months. And on November 20th, she organized and led a rally directly to Battle Creek, Michigan, the HQ of Kellogg's, and delivered 5,000 petitions and letters from Michiganders telling Kellogg's that Michigan cares, that they're paying attention, and that they don't want them to use any more deforestation sourced palm oil. Perfect. There is a beautiful graphic um, of their efforts, I believe, in in Grand Rapids, where they're pouring a giant frosted flakes uh, filled with something. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Into a giant cereal bowl. It's it's fabulous. They're very very creative in their work. Very much so. Um, so, if any listeners want to listen to Eva's firsthand account of that day, um, and you know an explanation behind the giant cereal bowl, then you can find that on our website, uh, hotinhere.us. Um, and we will keep following the story because it's one thing to make a pledge; it's another thing to implement. Heck yeah. Exactly. But also very inspirational. Absolutely. And did great work. This is a huge victory. I mean, for Eva, but also there's been NGOs working on this for a very long time now. And ultimately, it's a huge victory for us, for you, for me, because a lot of this forested land that does get cleared um, ends up emitting huge amounts of greenhouse gas. And if Wilmar International stops doing that then every person across the world also wins oh that's beautiful it's yes. a win for everybody and and all those tigers oh the tigers well. yeah yes. the tigers the Sumatran the tigers beautiful well we've got a fun show coming up um very soon we'll be featuring an interview we did a while back with mark benelli author of Detroit City as the Place to Be, The Afterlife of an American Metropolis. Then we'll have Jeff Watrick of Deadline Detroit join us on the phone to talk about his recent piece, Why Did Rand Paul Lie to Me at the Detroit Economic Club? And then Rachel Chatterden Bear of the Fair Food Network and of this lovely show will be in to tell us what's in season at the farmer's market, even amongst this cold, and give us some ideas for some planet and pocket-friendly holiday gift ideas. Can't wait to hear So it. to get us in the mood, we should listen to a tune from Detroit Junior. Uh, this is his song, Christmas Day.
All right. I hope that puts you in the holiday spirit. Next up, we're going to play a little interview that I uh, did earlier in last month in November with uh, UM alum Mark Benelli, um, who has written a number of books, including the one he'll talk about, Detroit City is the Place to Be. He writes for Rolling Stone and some other great uh, publications. But the program in the environment brought him here to the University of Michigan to talk about his book. And uh, also gave me a great opportunity to sit down and have a chat with him. So let's take a listen. Great. So I am here with Mark Benelli, author of the book Detroit City is the Place to Be, the Afterlife of an American Metropolis. It's great to have you with us, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. When did you start working on, or what, what compelled you to start working on a book about Detroit? Well, I grew up in the Detroit area, uh, St. Clair Shores, um, many of your listeners would probably know, but mm-hmm. a sort of working class suburb on the east side. And I, I always thought I would write about Detroit in some way. I just was always, um, growing up, growing up in, in a place like Detroit, uh, where you're constantly hearing about this golden age that you never personally experienced. The glory days. Uh, yeah. Are you from Victoria? I'm, I'm from outside of Cleveland. Okay. So it's similar. a different kind of a, yeah, yeah. similar. Rust Belt. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I grew up, you know, with that narrative. And, and so of course, it, it really had a hold on my imagination. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the city. My father, my parents are Italian immigrants. My father was a knife sharpening a shop in, in the city proper. And so I would... Um, spend all summer and most weekends there working for him. Eventually, when I was old enough to drive, I would make deliveries. So I got to know the city really well, but at the mm-hmm. same time, you know, most of our lives were in the suburbs, and you didn't really, you were discouraged from going downtown for any reason other than, like, a ball game or, like, taking, visiting Italian relatives to, to the Renaissance Center, the revolving restaurant at the top Come of the Come see our gold ceiling. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway, uh, for those reasons, even after I moved away, I always thought, thought about Detroit quite a bit and, and thought I would write about it somehow and for a long time thought it would take the form of a novel and made notes, you know, kind of very vague notes on it for years. And then uh, then around, well, 2008, the, um, the economy sort of collapsed <coughs> uh, and we all remember and, and, and I, was back, I was back visiting my folks for Christmas and that, that, that Christmas of 2008, and I remember, you know, I, by this point I'd been writing for Rolling Stone, and I was fishing around for story ideas, and I started seeing uh, ads for the auto show, the big party um, of the year for the, for the big three auto, yes. auto companies, and it's every January, <clears throat> and I thought, wow, you know, this is right when the they had just gone before Congress, hat in hand, begging for money you know, to, to try to avoid this, these bankruptcies, and so I thought this is the perfect time to really... You know, go there, write about this, and, and so it started as an article. And then when, mm-hmm. when I, uh, you know, once I was back, I mean, it just seemed like such a rich topic. And I saw mm-hmm. all these journalists from all over the country, all over the world, really, uh, uh, coming to town, often for just a couple of days, yes. and often telling the same sort of superficial story, um, and. and and so that, at that point, I thought, you know, and it's a cliche, but it just I realized that, that the truth was so much more interesting than any fiction I could come up with. And 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 I also thought, you know, as somebody from the area, I mean, maybe I should be the one 
for a person trying to tell the story and, and trying to you know tell it with a bit more nuance and mm -hmm. and and, and um, humor and, and and things that just are are normally sort of left left by the wayside if you just have time to come in for a day or two and take pictures of the uh, Packard plant or some sort of other room. Building. Maybe leave your hotel room to talk to someone. Yeah, talk to the cab driver. Not, you know, not leave the hotel bar. Yeah. 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 So um, that was it. Wow. So it seems you took a sort of long durée, that's my English pronunciation, uh, version of, of history. Why was that an important approach to take? I'm hearing the book covers 300 years. Yeah, well, I, I definitely, most of the book is... Um, my experience reporting on the ground. I moved back in mm -hmm. 2009 and I finished up in uh, 2012. So it's basically... Um, Did you, you write know, the whole thing in Detroit? No, I eventually... I, I reported... I, the front end of that period was reporting mm -hmm. and then sort of towards the back end I slowly started to withdraw from the city because I just realized <clears throat> if I stayed... I would not be talking to you right now. I would still be reporting the book. I mean, it's just, yes. you know, Detroit, um, again, as, as you know, you all know, it's, you open the paper on, on any given day and there's some new insane thing happening. And as a reporter, um, my impulse was always, oh, okay, I've got to add another chapter. To the book. I've got to get <laughs> this is so it. important. So I had to just basically cut myself off at a certain point. So I wrote a lot of it, um, yeah, not here. Mm -hmm. Uh, but um, you need that critical distance. It's my yeah, and that helped too. I feel, felt like being too much in the mix was just um, clouding a little bit. Uh, but yeah, so most of it, most of it is is um, reported. Um, you know, sort of literary journalism, I guess. You know, covering covering that period. But then I did definitely want to weave in. Um, as you said, three hundred years of history, and then also some some personal history of the story of my my family's, uh, you know, arrival and, and, and some, some, some stuff that happened to me while I was there. Mm -hmm. Those are important stories to tell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if we're telling ones that we genuinely care about, then they're also genuinely more fun to read, I think. Well, it's funny, I, I very adamantly, you know, when I sold the book, I, I told my editor, this is not going to be a memoir, don't expect a memoir. But then, you know, it's, you know, as I said earlier, my parents are Italian immigrants, it's, mm -hmm. and the immigrants immigrant experience is such a key part of Detroit's history, whether you're talking about immigrants from abroad, like mm -hmm. with my family, or just people who came from, you know, the South or, you know, all, all over the country when, De when Detroit was booming. So, um, so it, yeah, it, I thought it's, it's interesting for the reader to sort of understand where the, the person telling the story is coming from, but then also it's, it's a valid and interesting part of Detroit's history. Does the knife sharpening shop still exist? Well, the original location, uh, no. I mean, yeah, in a way. He sold, my dad's retired. He sold it to a cousin. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the other funny thing, I guess, is that he's from this, this valley in, in northern Italy where, for some reason, lots and lots of knife, knife sharpeners come there. That's their thing. Um, that's what we do. Their skill. <laughs> so, uh, and they end up, ended up scattering all over the world. Um, in the dialect, they're called muleta. Um, that means knife sharpener. And uh, <clears throat> and so in the Detroit area alone, um, when I was growing up, there were probably six major knife sharpening shops. And every, I was related to, to all of the 
the operations of the Shasi room. One was my uncle, one was my grandfather, you know, then cousins. And so anyway, when my, da- when my dad came time for him to retire, he sold the business to, um, to a cousin. And that, that cousin moved the shop out to the suburbs. Uh, <clears throat> so As you the, do. That's what, that's what you do. <laughs> so the old building, I mean, the neighborhood had gotten pretty rough. You know, it was rough when I, when I was a kid. I remember there were, you know, crack houses down the block and mm-hmm. a big barbed wire fence around the parking lot and, you know, constantly <clears throat> being woken up um, by phone calls at home, you know, from the alarm company telling my dad somebody had broken in or the alarm went off. But it's gotten that neighborhood has gotten much worse, and so the the building's still there, still there though. And they finally, I think they finally just sold it to to some other person. I don't know. Probably not a knife sharpener. I'm doubting it, but yeah, yeah we can we can hope. <laughs> exactly. Um, you express what you're calling a a, ca- a cautious optimism for the future. What 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 is that? <laughs> well, you know. I mean, we all we all know the the terrible stories about about what's going on in Detroit. You know, I mean, bankruptcy, which hadn't even happened when I when I finished the book, although paperback wasn't even a part of the terrible story. No, I mean, it was. You could sort of see it; it was being talked about. But yeah, uh, and I did the the paperback, which just came out. I do have an afterword which talks about the bankruptcy, but um, but you know, everything from the sort of economic collapse to the, the, the crazy um, murder rates to all the ruins and abandonment. We can go on. We all know all of that stuff. <clears throat> but, yeah, I did, I did end the book on a note of cautious optimism, I think, for, for a few reasons. I, I, I think anybody who's been to the sort of downtown, midtown core lately um, of the city can see that it's almost unrecognizable from even just a few years ago. It's really just, you know, the the amount of investment and, and people kind of moving in, um, smaller um, smaller companies, entrepreneurs. Uh, um, there's there's a, there's a level of energy that I haven't seen in, in ages, and that that makes me hopeful. Um, you know, in part, I think it's 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 been a good thing that that with with the auto industry's um, you know complete failure and fecklessness, and then they're you know able able to being able to you know pull themselves out of the hole, but still I think there there were for years there was this there was this sort of, sort of delusion on the part of uh, Detroit and the region really that the, the, the big three auto companies would, would always be there to save us. There was this very kind of paternalistic attitude. Um, and, and that's how they were set up in the first place it seemed. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean Ford especially was very um, you know, up in everybody's business and, yeah. you know, had people coming to your house to check up and you know, there was this sort of a morals, uh, uh, sort of morals police who would like make sure that, that his employees were, you know, uh, of the caliber he, he was looking for. And, and then, you know, at the time he was paying, well, I, I have to ask, what were some signs that someone was not was in a moral? I'm trying to remember if they checked up on you if you were drinking or things like uh-huh. that. It was, I mean, so at the time, you know, he he. It was unheard of, but he started paying people five dollars a day, yes. and that's why <clears throat> that caused one of the initial population surges in, in the city. People came from all over. To, mm-hmm. to, you know, it was just it's insane that somebody would, would would pay that much. And having those 
illusions of, of, of the big three always being there to save us, having those finally kind of washed away, I think it's been a, been a good thing. Because yeah. now you're seeing the economy definitely. All right. So that was a taste of my interview with Mark Benelli, author of Detroit City is the Place to Be. If you'd like to hear the rest of that interview, feel free to visit our archives at hotinhere.us. That's U.S. for us. Let's listen to a tune here uh, to continue getting us in the spirit uh, or not spirit. This is a fun one, I think. This is Christmas Wrapping by the Waitresses.
Good times with the Christmas wrapping. Jeff Watrick, are you with us on the phone? Hey, how you doing? Hey, we're very happy to have you with us and doing pretty good. How are you over there in Detroit? Pretty good. Pretty good. Awesome. Hey, just a little note for our amazing engineer, Paul Stromberg. We have no Jeff in our earphones. Um, if we could get him, that'd be great. But I can hear you echoing through the studio, so that's lovely, too. Well, as long as you can hear me somewhere or another. Paul has been doing some pretty amazing and complicated engineer work for us today. Actually, he was helping me edit some audio and running the show before us, doing all kinds of things. Uh, it's it's tough out there. So <laughs> there yeah, you no. go. You are so loud and clear. Thank you so much, Paul. Oh, Appreciate that's better. It. Yes. Oh, so much better. So Rand Paul lied to you. Uh, yeah, he did. Um, it was interesting. He was in ta- in Detroit last week at the Detroit Economic Club to talk about this um, sort of plan he wants to put forth to Congress that probably has no chance of really uh, ever becoming law that would create these sort of super uh, enterprise zones in uh, depressed cities um, that would not only uh, greatly lower uh, taxes, federal taxes in the cities, but also um, uh, allow businesses and, and other things to operate outside of EPA regulations. It uh, would um, uh, repeal some uh, wage protection requirements for people working on public projects, uh, contractors and such. Wow. Um, and I thought it was uh, particularly uh, interesting because earlier this year, um, he had an opportunity to uh, vote for a bipartisan amendment that would have defunded uh, crop insurance programs for tobacco farmers. Right. Rand Paul being from Kentucky and, and, and a big tobacco-growing state, but he, you know, being the libertarian he is and has been critical of crop subsidies in general, here was an opportunity to save $33 million annually uh, for the American taxpayer. Um, and the uh, amendment uh, from uh, Senators Feinstein and uh, McCain um, specifically said money not allocated to, to, to this tobacco program would go to deficit pay down. So this seemed like a very like common-sense uh, Republican kind of prog- you know policy to get behind. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, along with a number of, of conservative Republicans from from mostly the South, uh, were instrumental in, in blocking its passage. So I asked him about that. You know, why why does Detroit need less government, but clearly Kentucky needs more? Right. And his answer was, well, it didn't. It wouldn't have really cut the program; it would have moved it off books and been an off budget kind of thing. And then I, you know, so I took that answer and I backtracked and looked at the news coverage and looked at the amendment and um, spoke with people in in both McCain and Feinstein's office. And uh, lo and behold, there is no, there's nothing to back up his claim that this is just a, you know, an accounting gimmick. Um, it was uh, plain language, an attempt to repeal a really bad uh, government program that gives money to, uh, which I think in terms of both public health and environment environmental issue concern, um, you know, a bad crop. Um, but it's certainly one that uh, benefits people in his state. So the sort of libertarian ideals went out the window on that vote. Wow. I mean, I love I love your article and, and how you're weaving together kind of this complex story. But um, Andrea also pointed out she's she really enjoyed the way that this ended. And you can check this out on, on DeadlineDetroit.com. 
Yeah, I think the headline was, why did Rand Paul lie to me at the Detroit Economic Club? So yeah. just uh, put that in Google. Question mark. Your listener. <laughs> it's yeah. beautiful. Um, yeah, you end it wonderfully. Let's be honest, tobacco farmers grow cancer. Yeah, sure, we all have to die from something and no one should tell adults they can't enjoy smoke. It's a free country after all. But there's no reason the American taxpayer needs to help pay for your cigarette break. Absolutely. <laughs> No, especially especially at a time when uh, you know there is an effort to decouple food stamps from uh, the farm bill uh, mm-hmm. last year and basically defund food stamps, which you know I think wherever someone stands on on you know government spending, you have to say, look, helping poor people get a basic amount of food to, to feed themselves is probably a good use of, of our tax dollars. Certainly not an unreasonable use of no, tax dollars. No, exactly. Um, but, you know, so we'll, we'll, we'll cut that, but protect, you know, paying for tobacco farmers. Um, and you look at, I mean, it's something like $60 billion across uh, all levels of government that we spend on uh, tobacco-related health care um, every year. Wow. Uh, so, I mean, we're paying, we're paying money to subsidize something that costs us money as a nation um, that makes us sick. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not trying to sound like a, a teetotaler uh, on, on this or anything else. But, but I know you you're know, certainly not. So, But not we don't, we should, we don't need that. to subsidize our vices, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's difficult because some of the statistics you're giving here that taxpayers are spending about $14 billion a year to subsidize. Um, over half of the cost of crop insurance premiums right. for farmers, it's hard to decouple tobacco from that. But then at the same time, so so there's $14 billion going to farmers, and then um, 24% of, of costs, you're saying, um, that private crop insurance companies uh, pay for whatever services they're providing. So a quarter of that is also paid by the right. government. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's, it's corporate welfare in the truest sense. Um, and I think, you know, whatever good reasons for the crop subsidies program in the, in the 30s and in the midst of the Great Depression, um, you know, our farming economy is, is very different now. It's, you know, very much more a business. It's not the family farmer. Um, it's not Tom Joad, uh, you know, of our imagination. Um, and you have to sort of say, your insurance is a business expense. If you're General Motors, if you're um, a, a million, you know, million acre farm in Kansas, it's it, you, you're a business, and mm-hmm. you have to pay that, and, and that's borne out. And you, you know, you recoup the cost when you sell your product. Um, I certainly it, wonder if small farmers in Michigan, for example, are getting the same kinds of crop insurance. I, you know, they they are, and I, you know, the, you know, I think as with any time you do a reform effort on a big program, I think you have to kind of go with a scalpel and say, you know, maybe there is a a good reason um, to continue this for family farmers, um, just to ensure that. Uh, our agricultural network is not limited to one or two or three companies, um, mm-hmm. that there's crop diversity, you know, all those sort of good reasons. But I, I think in terms of as a blanket policy necessary to ensure we grow enough food, um, we've passed that point, you know. I mean, yeah. I, last year when or two years ago, whenever it was, when Michael Bloomberg wanted to do the, the soda tax in, in New York, um, I mean, think about the, the absurdity of that is that you – the federal government subsidizes um, the production of high fructose corn syrup through through crop subsidies. Yes. 
So that lowers the price of soda, allows 7-Eleven to give you the 120-ounce big gulp for 99 cents. But then we tax, so the, the tax dollars we spend to get us down to that price point, then we add a tax onto it so we don't use the product that we're incentivizing ourselves to use. I mean, you know, at some point, sugar, uh, grain, I mean, these, these sort of basic staple things that we have in abundance, we don't need to subsidize anymore. And, and when you look at problems like obesity and diabetes and, and other things, you know, we've, we've reached a point where the subsidy is probably hurting us as a nation. Sure. And um, since you do report from Detroit and you're so aware of what's going on there, uh, are you getting a lot more of what you, I think uh, you kind of were talking about originally in terms of politicians from other states uh, coming in and sort of you know, chiming in about subsidies um, in urban centers such as Detroit and I guess sort of more displays of the same sort of level of hypocrisy that we're ultimately seeing here with um, with good old Rand. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, you know, I mean, Detroit is a place that honestly needs more government. Um, and I, I don't mean that in the sense that it needs a, you know, a, a big sort of command economy, uh, central management system. It doesn't maybe necessarily need a sort of New Deal relief program so much as it needs, you know, a fully funded local government that can turn on the streetlights, can can pay for an adequate policing force, can, you know, run rely- a reliable bus service. I mean, so removing you know the the idea that you know we need less government in Detroit is really false. I think there there are many places um, across the political spectrum where we do need less government. But you know, you I mean, the public functions in, in Detroit have completely broken down, and you can't fix them by saying you know less government. Right. Wow. Well, Jeff, any closing words for this? Fantastic holiday season. I, you know, I think the, the 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 lesson from from guys like Rand Paul and everything is, uh, you know, Detroit has a, a number of complicated problems and they're not going to be fixed with easy solutions. Mm-hmm. Right. Or, <laughs> the, wow, my mind is like a little bit blown by these like super enterprise zones you mentioned at the at the top. Um, Right, and I mean, just real quick. I mean, think about the the pet coke pile controversy last summer in Detroit. Um, you know, what Rand Paul's thing would do is basically make free reign. You could have pet coke up and down the Detroit River coast because there would be no uh, regulation. Regulations are sometimes very, very good. Yeah, I'll go ahead and say that they're not always great, but uh, they're doing important important things, especially yeah. when it comes to protecting people's health, which is ultimately the the foundation of. Yeah, your right to well-being. pollute ends when it hits our water, right? Exactly. And subsidies are okay, just or subsidies are not okay, but unless they're in Kentucky. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's uh, the hypocrisy. Of that is just so frustrating to me. But well, I echo your call for wishing yep. for. Uh, Senator Paul, to be uh, honest about that level of hypocrisy. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Beautiful. Check out Deadline Detroit um, for some political news and commentary, uh, which, which is great fun, actually. Well, thank you. It's it's a enjoyable publication and incredibly informative. And, and I like that it doesn't seem to have to fit within the bounds of kind of a sanitized version of things, that there is space for commentary 
And, and we appreciate that as readers. It's refreshing. Yes. So thank you, Jeff. Happy holidays. All my best to Sarah. Same to you. And your doggies. Yep. Oh, yeah. They're great. All right. Take care. Awesome. You too. All right. The next tune we're going to play is one that Jeff wanted to hear. Um, this is Jonathan Coulton, I believe, with the tune Christmas is Interesting. Have put on your beady pajamas. It's time for a long winter's nap. There's a knock on the door and a stranger is there. He wants you to sit on his lap. He takes your watch and he gives you a hairbrush. Your wife gets a wig on a chain. He says he can't stay Cause he's got a long way to go And it's starting to rain Christmas is interesting Like a knife in your heart Christmas is interesting How it tears you apart Rachel Chatterton, former co-hostess of this show, is here live in the studio. Hi, Hi, Rachel. I'm so happy to be here. We're so happy to have you and to see your face. We've been enjoying hearing your voice um, uh, uh, with us on air, but it's so it's so great to have both the voice and the you. Yay! Making it extra hot in here. The time of the season for Christmas trees. Oh. 
It was beautiful, right? Yeah. Right. It's the time of the season. So usually um, the what's in season segment is about food and the food we grow and when we should eat it, et cetera, and why it's in, se- when, why it's in season. All the things. Season. And yeah. um, I figured this time we would do Christmas trees because Christmas trees are actually one of Michigan's major agricultural products. Tell me more about that. Seriously. Um, the Michigan Department of Agriculture and Rural Development has a very strong interest in the Christmas tree program. There are certifications. Mm. There are various regulations, which are a good thing, mm-hmm. on Christmas trees and where <laughs> they can be exported to because of invasive insects. Um, it's, like, it's like a big deal. Um, Christmas tree farming. Um, in Michigan, there are... Um, <clears throat> I'm seeing we're ranking three, yeah, third in the, in we the are country. Third in production behind of fresh Christmas trees. Of fresh we Christmas trees behind Oregon and North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Huh. Um, but we grow the most varieties of Holler. fresh Christmas trees Diversity. compared to all other states. Um, and it's, it's a really major... Um, agricultural product it's a 40 million dollar crop in michigan wow and um we also grow quite a few poinsettias too there's a lot of heated indoor greenhouse space Mm -hmm. and um michigan poinsettia growers can grow upwards of 2.3 million poinsettia plants million so what is your thoughts on so some will say oh you should get a plastic christmas tree because you can reuse it year after year whereas oh isn't it terrible to to have a fresh tree because you're essentially killing something. What's your thoughts? Well, you know, as with all um, decisions that we try to make as informed citizens of this planet, or there are holidays. pluses yeah. and minuses to both sides. A plastic Christmas tree is reusable. That is true. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are produced typically with plastic, um, petrochemical plastics. So when there's a Christmas tree made out of corn plants, we can have this conversation over again. Um, <laughs> but Christmas trees are um, biodegradable and compostable. They are an agricultural product. Because they're an agricultural product, there are ups and downs to that. You know, there's there's land that's being kept in open agricultural production in order to create the Christmas trees. There are also a lot of inputs going onto that land, fertilizers and pesticides to keep those trees healthy. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm so. reading here that it takes about nine to 11 years to grow the average home tree. Is that right? Yeah, I'm seeing, I was doing a little research, you know, in the last 20 minutes, um, and uh, I'm seeing numbers anywhere from four to 15, average around seven to eight to nine years to grow the tree. There are at any time about 10 times more Christmas trees growing than there are for sale in a year. So they do take up a good chunk of land Mm -hmm. because of that timeline. Right. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, they provide habitat. True. They hold Very the soil true. in place. Mm-hmm. They're they, probably... They can provide a windbreak if they're part of a diversified farm. Taking in CO2 even mm-hmm. sometimes. They might even be sequestering CO2. Wild. Look so many ecoservices. They're a I renewable know. resource. They are, and they're compostable. Or if you are a friend of mine, you can participate in the annual Christmas tree bonfire party. That is a great party. Um, which totally <laughs> negates the whole carbon sequestration thing because basically we build a big bonfire and throw Christmas trees on it which makes a flame about 50 feet high it's gorgeous it's fantastic you can also sink them in a pond we sometimes do that Hmm. and supposedly fish like that because algae will grow on it and then they have more sticks to hang out with in michigan could i just go to any pond and throw my christmas tree in is that legal or would i is that fine i don't know i'm not gonna say (laughs) yes because i probably think no but probably not i believe that our city um 
also does, they do Christmas tree collection for composting. Okay. So that's another sustainable way to get rid of your Christmas tree. There are some Christmas tree farms that will sell you a tree with the root ball in a pot. The living tree. The living tree. So you can have it in your home and decorate it and everything and then just take it outside somewhere and plant it, you know, on your land or with the permission of the landowner. That makes so much sense. Um, Which is a really cool idea. I like it. And it yeah. seems the the go to the Christmas tree farm, cut your own tree thing is coming back. And it's a great way Absolutely. to spend time with your friends and family mm-hmm. outside. Yes. Do it a little Christmas National Lampoon's Christmas vacation experience with your tree. Uh, let's listen to a tune. And then, and then, Rachel, I think you may have some planet and yeah. pocket-friendly gift ideas. More festive fun to come. Yes, this uh, tune's going out to the Johnson family. Uh, we are really a big friend of the South Park Christmas album. And this was one of few tunes that are actually acceptable to play midday on the radio. This is Eric Hartman's version of Oh Holy Night. And So much love there for the holiday season. So much love. So Eric Hartman tells us that this is the season for Christmas pies and presents. Is that what he (laughs) says? Something like that. We know you got the pies down. What are some great... So many of us, well, our former grad students are students in this room. And our pockets aren't as deep as, as perhaps we'd like them to be. Do you have any ideas for meaningful and yet... Not financially stressful gifts? Well, first of all, just because you're not a graduate student is not an excuse to not be thrifty in your life. I just want to point that out. Yes. (laughs) I aspire to maintain my grad student budget now that I am a full-fledged adult. (laughs) Um, But I I think this is a... I love having this conversation about thrifty gifts and because mm-hmm. I really think it points back to the true meaning of the season. Yes. Um, and I'm talking about like the deep human meaning of the season. So let me take you back. Let's set the stage. <laughs> 
take you back. Imagine you are an early human. Maybe, I don't know, like four to 6,000 years ago. You know, not that early, but early enough. You're okay. living in a northern climate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've just had this great harvest and it's been a fantastic summer and the days are getting shorter and shorter and shorter and it's getting colder and colder. And it's probably going to seem to you like maybe the sun's never going to come back. It's going to go away and it's never going to come back. And then one day you wake up and you notice that the sun came up one minute earlier than (gasps) it did the previous day. Which you were clocking on your watch. And your watch made of stones. (laughs) Your your inner time clock. Places. Mm -hmm. But you notice the days start getting longer. Wouldn't you want to have a party on that day? Yes. I would like to have the hugest party. Yes. Yeah. I would love to have a party on that day. And so the, the whole season, there's like, there's a reason that most major religions have a holiday at this time of year, especially those that originated in northern ish climates. Um, and it's because of this like innate human desire to party when the lights come back on. Yeah. Yeah. Can you feel it? I can feel it. I dig it. I can feel it. Cool. So, um, in the interest of having a party, in the spirit of the early humans, I like to have my party making the best use of my limited resources. Excellent. Because, <laughs> you know, they, they didn't have the malls and stuff at that no. time. No. Hmm. Um, what did they do? What did they? I don't know. I imagine they probably made things and they ate things. Yes. They made things out of what they have. So, um, Honey, here's some delicious nuts I found for you. Yeah. Your favorite nuts. Mm-hmm. And here's some stuff that I saved for you during the summertime when it grew. And we figured out a way to preserve it so that we could enjoy it now. Here's some fish I buried under the ground three months ago. Yeah, and it fermented. And now it's even more healthy than it was before. So um, making good use of limited resources and still giving gifts that are meaningful and useful. I have a couple ideas of things that I like to do for my friends. Great. I will be taking Um, notes right now. So if any of you out there listening are my friends, this is your preview as to what you're getting for Christmas, (laughs) which is very similar to what you got last year. Um, one, (laughs) One thing that is a great gift that can keep on giving is to just make reusable gift bags. If you have a sewing machine, it's super easy, but you can also just get a needle and thread and make them yourself. All you need to do is cut two rectangles of fabric and stitch them together and turn it inside out. And so the seams are on the inside and you have a gift bag. You can get a little fancier with the designs if you want to make things that fit wine bottles or whatever. Uh But then you can just find a nice consumable thing like make a batch of cookies, buy a $3 bottle of wine at Whole Foods or whatever and put it in this reusable gift bag and then it's this like handmade lovely thing that the person you're giving it to can then reuse themselves. So you're spreading the gift of thriftiness. That's beautiful. Absolutely. Um, And there's lots of edible things that you can do. Mm -hmm. Um, Cookies are always good. Granola Mm -hmm. is a good one. I Mm. like at Christmas time, I like to give something kind of healthy. Yeah. Because everybody else is giving like cookies and candy. Uh-huh. So granola or I have a great recipe for these co- crackers, cheese crackers, which isn't necessarily healthy, but at least it's not full of sugar. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are those are good ideas. I've done spiced nuts before. Mm-hmm. Spiced nuts and are very tasty. You can use local Michigan honey instead of sugar mm-hmm. if you care to. Or maple syrup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good ideas. And then another thing you can do if you're really into the creative reuse of items and the people that you love have pets, 
Um, you can make pet toys and I have two, I have a dog and a cat. And so the things that I make are little catnip toys out of old sweaters. So if you have a sweater that's shrunk in the wash or has holes in it or whatever, you cut it into a rectangle about maybe like four by six inches. Okay. Rachel's showing us with her hands Get, here, like, yeah, like in the L7 loser signs, and then kind of estimating. And then mm-hmm. you get a little bit of dried catnip, which you can buy in bulk at the co op. So buy about 50 cents worth of it. So thrifty. And just take a little pinch of it and put it right in a line down the middle uh-huh. of horizontally down the middle of that square uh-huh. of sweater. Uh-huh. Fold it uh-huh. over itself and then roll it up. And then take a little string uh-huh. and tie the bundle like right in the middle. If you're imagining this in your head, what you end up with is a little thing that looks like a mouse because oh, it's yes. it's mouse shaped and sized and it's got little strings dangling off it like feet or tails or whatever. Oh, and it's, it's full of cat drugs and cats love these things. And you don't have to sew it or anything. You don't have to sew it. All you need to be able to do is tie an overhand knot to make that gift. So if there are cat ladies in your life. I might be making some of these today, as a matter of fact. Get some old sweaters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or cat gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Cat yes, fathers. Cat, cat gentlemen, too. Yeah. And you can make dog toys out of old jeans. You um, can cut strips of old jeans and tie a knot in them. And that's good enough for some dogs. Um, <laughs> or you can braid the strips and then tie a knot in the other end. And then it looks like a bone. It's made out of old jeans. Wow. My dog doesn't care. My dog will just chew on a strip of jeans. I don't have to do anything. That's beautiful. That's awesome. And I'm sure your friends probably also really appreciate not getting a random gift that they then have to figure out what to do with. So this, they know, is going to be put to great use because their dogs and cats are going to go crazy over it. Mm -hmm. And they're not going to be choking on plastic. I know. Mm -hmm. And I also will have to say, I might not be an expert on etiquette, but I also think there's nothing wrong with (laughs) re-gifting. I love Rachel's pearls of wisdom that we we get to enjoy. I know. You call me up and you never know what you're going to get. That's fantastic. So we're talking making your own gift bags, which can Mm -hmm. be quite easily done with some fabric and some sewing. Mm -hmm. And you can use fabric you have on hand. You can use your old t-shirts. If you have t-shirts with cool designs on the front, Uh you can make that into a gift bag. Even your old jeans, probably. your jeans, yeah. Or like a plaid shirt if you happen to have a green and red plaid shirt. That's like the ultimate. Yeah. I dig it. And perhaps filling them with some consumables. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That don't create waste. Or they do create waste, but not the kind that fills landfills. (laughs) (laughs) I suppose, yes. (laughs) I dig it. So what, uh, aside, whoa, aside from consumables, what's some ideas for those who do not have the good fortune of having a cat or a dog? Mm. Rachel's Um, like, uh, uh. I didn't prepare for this. Um, I've I've actually been getting into, um, this is also sort of a consumable, but balms and lotions are really quite easy to make. Really? Ooh, they yeah. Complex. They are all, all you really need is a pan and some oils. Um, and you can order the fancier kinds of oils like shea butter and beeswax and, and cocoa butter and stuff online. Actually pretty cheap. And then other oils that go into a good balm or lotion um, are just edible oils that you would use in your kitchen. So I've been making an olive oil and beeswax balm. Mm. And you can just get um, some essential oils also available at the co-op or other natural foods stores and just give it a little bit of scent to it. But just mm-hmm. basically melt some beeswax into olive oil and... Um, and you have to let it harden and see if it's it's as hard or as soft as you like it. I haven't mm-hmm. quite gotten the ratios worked out 
totally systematically yet. That's a really easy one. And you can buy beeswax from local farmers at the farmer's market. Wow. fun. And then you could put it into little pots. Mm -hmm. You You can can flavor it. Yeah. Maybe add some colorings. Yeah. And that's something you can make a really large batch of and put into small containers. And that can go a long way for a lot of your friends. And you could probably make a whole batch that would result in gifts for 10 or 15 people for the cost of like a chapstick. Wow. Well, maybe not a brand name chapstick, but like a fancy chapstick that you'd buy at the <laughs> farmer's market. Whoa, I'm sorry. I keep jamming in the microphone today. And, You're uh, so excited. Yeah, I know. I just, woo, holidays. That's but anyway, the internet is full of recipes for stuff like that. And I, like I said, I don't have one totally worked out yet, but I have, uh, I've tried it. That's excellent. It works. Do you it's think easy. you could make it with, with maybe some fresh lavender or rosemary? Yes. Even oh, you there? can infuse the oil. If uh-huh. you're going to use olive oil, infuse that with the herbs. Mm. And then let it sit for a couple weeks. So too late for this Christmas. Oh, well. <laughs> but let it sit for a couple weeks and then you strain out the dried herbs and you're left with an oil that's infused with the herb flavor. Oh, that's true. And, and all of the beneficial um, properties of the botanical. So smart. Almost every flavored or strongly scented herb has medicinal properties to it. Wow, 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 wow. I'm going to send this recording to my friends just as a hint. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, guys, do this. (laughs) Do this two weeks ago. Send me some gift bags. You could probably make also lavender sachets while you're doing it for for the lady or Mm -hmm. gentleman in your life instead of uh, the catnips. Yep. You really could. Mm-hmm. They would do it. I love a good love. Hey, can I introduce our last song? Please. Um, so we're going to play a song that I love in the deepest depths of my soul. It's the Atheist Christmas Carol by Vienna Tang. And I just want to shout out that Vienna Tang uh, went to grad school with um, me and Gina at the Holler. School of Natural Resources. And her album that she released this year, which is called Ames, was just rated by Glide Magazine as one of the top 10 albums released by women in 2013. That's so fantastic. we're very proud of her. And Phenomenal. the song is really beautiful. Phenomenal. So we're going to take us out on this tune. I'd like to thank Mark Benelli for sitting down with me a long time ago. Jeff Watrick of Deadline Detroit for joining us. Rachel Chatterden for being with us. Thanks live so much. in the studio. And Paul Stromberg, our excellent and intrepid engineer, holding things down for us in the booth. And I would like to say... <laughs> Jennifer for being the most awesome co-host ever. Oh, you're so sweet. You're so sweet. Thank you, Andrea, for this good. 